a couple of announcements this Sunday. So it's going to be a special Sunday. It's going to be good for everybody who can to come and uh, be here to celebrate. We're celebrating Independence Day a day early. Actually, if my memory is correct, it was officially signed on the by the secretary on the 2nd of July. And, um, and so uh, it was signed for several days, uh, or several weeks actually, until about the 1st of August by different members of the Continental Congress. So it is not strange or weird to be celebrating Independence Day on July 3rd. And at the end of the service, we'll have a special ceremony for a few minutes as uh, Mark Musser has received his Ph.D., from, uh, I think, is it Corbin? Is that the name of it? I can't remember the name of the school. Anyway, uh, we'll know all of that on Sunday. And he could not be in the country to be cowled where you receive your doctoral cowl and commencement. So we thought, it, since Wayne House was one of his readers on his dissertation, that it was um, something of value to have a short ceremony to recognize his achievement and uh, Wayne will conduct a short little ceremony, and then we'll cowl Mark because of his doctorate. And then afterwards, we'll have our Independence Day uh, barbecue dinner. And just a reminder, Vacation Bible School is uh, J- June 19th to the 21st. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent silent prayer so we can make sure we are in right relationship with the Lord. Scripture says that we are to walk by the Spirit, but when we sin, we're no longer walking by the Spirit, but according to the sin nature. We recover simply by confessing sin, and that means that we uh, just in silent prayer confess sin and instantly we're forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So let's um, let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so... So very grateful for all that you have done for us and provided for us in this nation, a nation of laws, a nation of freedom, a a nation whose founding principles were derived from the Word of God. And Father, we're thankful that we can live in a nation that recognizes that. And we know that that's under attack in many quarters. It's under attack from many professors in numerous universities, a vast majority of not... Uh, The lion's share of schools are not places where you can learn the truth about the history of this nation uh, or the truth about the role of Christianity in this nation. And, Father, we pray that that will change. We pray that you will raise up leaders who will be uh, significant in in the appointments that they make and that others in these various elections Uh, Believers will be elected to office that can lead and serve on the basis of your word. Father, we pray that as we look at a mirror of what is going on in in our country and in our world, in the book of Judges, that you will help us to understand uh, that all of these problems we see today have a spiritual problem 
and the spiritual root, and that is because they've rejected you and rejected your word. So, Father, we study these things for insight, for wisdom, to develop a uh, an understanding of how to interact with the world around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're back in our study, our forward momentum in Judges. Uh, in Judges chapter 6, we're just at the tail end of Judges because we stopped there as we got to the episode of Gideon putting out the fleece to deal with one of the misapplications of this episode that is so common, and that is thinking that somehow this has something to do with um, that this has something to do with finding out God's will for your life. And it is so very clear from this passage that, that God was commissioning Gideon to be the one through whom he would deliver Israel. And yet Gideon, on one hand, he obeys the Lord. He tears down the altar to Baal that's out in front of his father's house. This would have been a huge structure. Because the whole area around there, the villages and all of these people would come there for all of the various pagan uh, feasts and festivals and uh, sacrifices and everything that was going on related to those fertility cults. And that was the center of it. And God was making sure that that Gideon, uh, as it were, cleansed that area, cleansed his family of this sin of, of idolatry. Because what we see throughout this book of Judges is that chaos is king and chaos rules because of spiritual relativism and paganism, those that reject God, those that reject God's word. And so that's uh, the foundation here. Uh, tonight we're going to spend some time. We'll get in, we're still at the end of Judges chapter 6. And so we're going to get down to verse 34 and come back and look at uh, the statement, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and talk about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and what the Scripture teaches. There's so much confusion about this. There's a lot of confusion about the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ. There's confusion about the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer today. And so we need to make sure that we understand what the, what the Scripture teaches. The theme of Judges is how a nation goes from being spiritually, from being spiritual conquerors and spiritually victorious in the conquest of the a land of Canaan in one generation, and then uh, about 300 years later they have deteriorated and become as depraved as the Canaanite cultures, they were to have annihilated. And so the book is telling us the role of this book in Scripture is to show how a culture falls apart, how it moves from being uh, spiritually focused uh, to being uh, spiritually uh, compromised and to being uh, completely spiritually depraved. We see the example in their, the leadership and as we go through the book, each subsequent judge is a little more paganized than the ones before. And, and then in the appendices, chapters 17 to 21, we witness the paganization of the priests, the spiritual leaders of the nation. And then in 19 to 21, or excuse me, uh, 17 and 18, it's paganization of the priests, and 19 to 21, a paganization of the people. And that's exactly what we see today. And we can turn on the news and we can watch the news if you care to watch the news, if it doesn't depress you too much. Uh, it's just horrible. And you watch these little pity parties and these temper tantrums that take place when judicial decisions don't go the way some people want them to. And that shows that in their very heart they have given themselves over to chaos and they, they have rejected the rule of law. And they don't understand uh, authority orientation, that that you have to obey the law uh, as long as it doesn't, for, as, for believers, as long as it doesn't contradict the word of God and forcing you to do something that is a violation of God's declared or revealed will. And so it, it's going to hap happen here probably, maybe not this year, next year, but 
we're we're on a trajectory, and as believers, we have to understand how to handle that if the Lord does not bring some sort of change as a result of the of a spiritual shift on the part of people. This last week, when I was at the National Association of Christian Leaders, it was interesting. There was a speaker at noon on Friday who was uh, very well known. I did not know who she was very active behind the scenes in several different organizations and uh, known well by numerous uh, legislators and leaders across the country and has been quite influential. And she did a great job, but she spoke about the fact that we can turn this country back. And there were others that had that theme. And I leaned over to a friend who was sitting next to me and I said, do you think that that can really happen? And he's Maybe, if the Lord wills. But we're not on a trajectory where that seems likely. And you've heard me say this before, that if you trace back some of the ideas that are really percolating to the top right now, they have their roots in the movements that were taking place around the time of the Second Great Awakening in the early part of the 1800s. Utopian societies were created in the United States, and they were uh, going out and establishing uh, cities and uh, communes uh, based on these communal principles. Now, this is before Marx came along. But that's their ideas, and they were atheistic. They didn't really believe in God, and they thought that people should just live together, and we could have a, a harmony. In fact, one of the cities, I think it was Jeremy Bentham, um, founded was uh, New Harmony. But it's a denial of the depravity of man and the sin nature and what God has said in his word. And But you have that going on. You had other things that went on. Now, they weren't re- well known. They weren't publicized. A lot of uh, they weren't the kind of things that you were taught in elementary school or junior high or high school about American history. But you've always had people in different cultures who were uh, confused about their own sexuality and what they should do about it. Uh, so these things were, were present, and there were groups that wanted to make this these perversions normative. So you had these, these uh, evil ideas all along, but now they have grown and grown and grown, and we've been on a trajectory for the last 200 years. And there are times when it's leveled off. Sometimes it might have bump back up a millimeter or so, but it hasn't turned back. And the only thing that will cause it to turn back is for a massive number of people in this country to shift to a Judeo-Christian biblical worldview. And apart from that, it's just, it's just superficial. It's just, you know, changing the externals but there's no internal change, and that's why the only the ultimate solution is going to be uh, the divine solution, which is a turning to the Lord. And apart from that, it's it's just superficial. But superficial doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it's not going to last long. It's not going to be permanent. Superficial restores order, and so we can be thankful for these periods of time when things seem a little more stable and uh, and chaos doesn't uh, doesn't rule quite as much, and so this is um, uh, this is an important thing to understand. Now, I want to go back as we start into this section, get back into our flow of what's going on here. Uh, what has happened uh, at the end of Judges uh, chapter uh, chapter six? before you get to the sign of the fleece. And the point there is a statement that is made in Judges 6.32 after uh, Gideon has torn down and destroyed the altar to Baal, then the people come out on the verge of a riot. We haven't seen anybody react like that recently, have we? And all these people are coming because they're... Their false god, their, their, the false temple, the, the altar to Baal has been torn down 
and they're just screaming mad about it, and they want to kill Gideon. They want him executed. And so you can relate that to some current events right now. But his father steps to the plate, as it were, and he comes out and makes a challenge. And it's a really ambiguous type of statement that's made here, and that is part of the, we run into these things in Scripture, and that's the kind of thing God wants us to stop and really, really consider about what is what is going on here. So because Gideon had contended or fought, the idea there is a Hebrew word reeve, which means to fight, to contend, it's used of lawsuits, bringing a lawsuit against somebody, that kind of a thing. Uh, uh, his father is going to rename him Jerob Baal, and because uh, and then he says, "Well, you know, let let Baal fight fight with him, uh, because he has torn down his altar." And the trouble with this is it's very unusual Hebrew, and it usually looks like 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 um, and the way a lot of people will handle this is to think that that Joash Gideon's father. Is is siding with him the possibility that he's even uh, uh, repenting of his idolatry, but the, the ironic thing is that eventually Gideon is the one who goes right back into idolatry and leads the nation back into idolatry at the end of the eighth chapter, and so it it leaves open the question as to whether Gideon is really victorious here or not. And of course what's going to come out is that Gideon is just a a tool in the hands of God in the hands of the Holy Spirit in order to out of pure grace uh give a reprieve to the Israelites from their divine discipline. And as I pointed out when we went into this there's no indication that they uh, repented, turned back to God. There's no indication they confessed their sin. There's no indication of anything other than uh, they were just being beaten down by the Midianites and the Amalekites and the others from the east. And so they cried out to God for relief. And here we see the graciousness of our God, the kindness of our God, and it's as true for us as it is for the Israelites and others that we don't deserve God's grace and goodness to us in situations that we have even brought upon ourselves. And we really haven't um, uh, turned the corner that we need to spiritually, and yet we cry out to God, and in his grace he will give us a reprieve from divine discipline uh, that, that he is under. But it's a funny thing that goes on here with this name, and I talked about this a little bit four or five lessons back, and I just want to bring it back into focus because in this, as we finish up this section, you have the mention of Gideon by name, verse 20, uh, verse 32 rather. Uh, He's going to rename Jeroboam, so that name is, is brought in and introduced to us in verse 32. But the next time he's described is in verse 34 that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And then at the beginning of verse 36, then Gideon says to God, and this is the putting out the fleece where he's trying to avoid the responsibility God gave him. And then when we start chapter 1, which gets into the battle itself, it goes back to Jeroboam. And it starts, then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, to make sure we understand that this is the same, the same person, and then there's kind of a shift back to Gideon's name. Now, what is going on there? Well, that's something we have to think about. But it seems that when Gideon is being obedient, he's Gideon, and when he's not, he's Jeroboam, or maybe it's the other way around. Uh, but that happens sometimes, like with the name of Isaac, um, or, uh, or excuse me, the name of Jacob. Yaakov, a heel grabber, duplicitous one, and then he's called Israel, prince with God. And when one name is used over the other, it indicates something different about about his spirituality. But he's called Jeroboam. But then when he's when when he's referenced in Second Samuel, 
that suffix Baal, which references the false god, shifts to Besheth, Jerobesheth. Bosheth is the root of that word, which means shame. And so you see that happen there and with these others' names, like uh, Saul's son is, is Eshbaal, mentioned in First Chronicles 8.33 and 9.39, but when he's mentioned in Second Samuel 2.8, he's Ishbosheth. He's a man of shame. And so that there's this play back and forth, which is very, very interesting uh, going on here. The son of Jonathan is called Merabal or Mer, uh, Mephibosheth. So this is, this is very interesting. So as we look at this wrap up here and what, what happens, uh, as the, uh, as the Midianites are coming against them, we read in verse 33, then all the Midianites and Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. So we need to break that down just a little bit and remind ourselves who these people are. The Midianites are the descendants of Abraham through his second wife, Keturah. Now, I'm not including Hagar as a wife. She's a concubine. So Sarah is his first wife. After Sarah dies, he remarried uh, Keturah, and she bore him uh, several sons in Genesis 25-2, Zimran, Yakshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. So Midian, he, she, he is a half-brother to... Um, uh, to Isaac. And then uh, the Midianites, at least in Genesis, are friendly to the descendants of Abraham. Uh, they're the ones to whom Joseph is sold, but there doesn't seem to be any antagonism there. But once we get over into uh, Exodus and, the, and into Numbers, then the Midianites are hostile to the Jews. And uh, just recently we looked at the uh, episode last week with Balaam, the false prophet, uh, was hired by Balak, the king of the Moabites, uh, to curse Israel. And so uh, the Moabites are, are and, excuse me, and Midianites are very hostile. They were allied together, so they're very hostile. And then we get into the Amalekites, and the Amalekites were the descendants of one of Esau's sons. And in Genesis 36:16, we're told that these are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife, chief Korah, chief Gatam, and chief Amalek. These were the chiefs of Eliphaz, that's Edom's son, so the, Amalek was his grandson. These were traditional enemies of Israel. They went back to the time of the Exodus, and they they seem to be have be located kind of in the Sinai Peninsula, south of Israel. But they they also were um, uh, migrants. I mean, they moved all over the, the the Middle East. They were nomadic, and when they um, uh, when the Israelites were coming out, they attacked them. And there's this well known battle in the scriptures where God tells uh, Moses that he needs to stand with his arms up. And as long as his arms are up in the shape of a cross, as long as his arms are up, then the Israelites will, will win. But if his arms fall, then the Israelites would lose. And so the battle goes back and forth until finally he gets two men, um, to Aaron and Hur, to stand up next to him and prop his arms up uh, so that he would uh, they would stay that way and the Israelites finally won. But following that, uh, the uh, Amalekites were always considered a, a great enemy of Israel. And when you look in the book of Judges, uh, we see that the Amalekites were also uh, allied with uh, Moab uh, against against Israel, and we see that they were also allied with uh, the Canaanites against uh, at the time of Deborah and Barak. They were allied with, uh, uh, with, with Sisera and uh, with King Yavin of Hazor. So that helps us understand that this is a historic problem and one of great significance. So here's a couple of maps here to orient you. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to zero in on this. 
So this area here, you, up here on the Mediterranean Sea, you see the coastline comes down and makes this little hook. That's where the modern city and port of Haifa are located. And you have the Kishon River that ran down through here. And today there's not much of a river. It's an intermittent stream. But back then in the spring and at other times when there were heavy rains, it would flood. And that's what happened in the battle with the, uh, between uh, Deborah and Barak and the Canaanites is it flooded and that bogged down the, the, um, bogged down the chariots. So this is the Esdralon Valley. It's called the Valley of Jezreel. It's also called the Valley of Megiddo because Megiddo is located uh, right here and that overlooks the valley. So it is called the Valley of the Mountain of Megiddo, Har Megiddo, which is where we get the English form of the word Armageddon. So if we zero in on this a little bit, see here's the Sea of Galilee, here's the Dead Sea, the Jordan River is this little blue line that runs south, and so this is the breadbasket, really, of Israel. They produce all of the food that's necessary for all of the Isra- uh, everyone in Israel plus exports. So that is a prized possession to control all of that uh, all of that farmland. Now we'll zero in just a little bit, and we see these places like Ophrah. This is where Gideon is from, and Mount Moreh. Uh, this is where uh, the battle is going to take place. Just north of there is Mount Tavor, which is where the Deborah and Barak uh, troops came down, and they defeated the Canaanites. Down here you have Herod, H-A-R-O-D. That is where the springs are located, where Gideon will thin out the ranks. And, uh, and then this is Jezreel, later becomes a major city for the northern kingdom. But all of these things happen right in this particular uh, particular area. And so we just zero in, and here's Mount Gilboa where, where Saul died, and here's Megiddo over here, so you see this. Uh, and if we back up just a little bit, we'll see that this is in the territory. Here's Zebulun, here's Naphtali, uh, here's Asher. All of these are in, in that particular area. And so we're told... In verse 35, he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh. So here we have West Manasseh here and then the other half-tribe on the far side, East Manasseh, on both sides of the Jordan River. Uh, Manasseh, and then he sent messages to Asher up here along the coast and Zebulun and Naphtali. So he is bringing in all of these tribes that are to the north of the uh, Valley of Jezreel. And then this is a map of where of the same sort of area, so you can get a little bit different look. And then this topographical map, and you have Herod Springs, and we'll look at all this as we go through the battle coming up. But what's interesting is in Judges 6.34, we have this statement made that precedes, the not only precedes the battle, it precedes Gideon putting out the fleece. And what happens is that, that church-age believers come along and they read this, that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and they interpret it within the framework of the ministries of the Holy Spirit in the church age. And, and what immediately follows is Gideon's disobedience doesn't seem to make sense. We'll see the same thing that sets us up for the next judge is Jephthah, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah, and then he makes this rash vow. And so the assumption from a lot of uh, Christians is looking at this through the lens of the New Testament. But that's not what's going on uh, biblically. So we need to look at the Holy Spirit in the book of Judges a little bit. And the role of the, Old Test- of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is very, very different from the role of the Holy Spirit in uh, in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, his role, you don't even see the Holy Spirit mentioned much before um, before the flood. What we have is a statement where God says, my spirit 
will not abide. Actually, that's the, the Hebrew word there. It's translated strive in the King James because it's only used one time in the Hebrew Scripture. And so it's translated to strive because they were just guessing at it. And yet when we have recovered so many uh, so many documents and so much uh, material from uh, other Semitic language peoples in the ancient world, we see that the root for that word is used in other cultures and in other languages, and it has the idea of abiding or staying as opposed to the idea of contending or striving. And so I believe it's better translated, God saying, my spirit will not abide with man. And he's talking not just about the Holy Spirit, of course he's talking about the Holy Spirit, but the entirety of the Trinity. Because remember, the presence of God is still in the Garden of Eden on the earth. And after the flood, God goes back to heaven. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the whole triune God disappears. But anyway, that's the only time you really have the Spirit mentioned uh, much before the time of, of the judges. The role, so the role that you have prior to this is to empower leaders. God is working through the theocracy of Israel. Today he's working through the body of Christ. The role of the Spirit is different in the body of Christ than it was in the theocracy of Israel. And as far as I can tell, there probably were not more than 90 or 100 people who had any relationship with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. You had, um, you had kings. We know that Saul had, uh, that the Holy Spirit came upon Saul, and then the Holy Spirit left Saul, was taken away from Saul. We also have passages that talk about the Holy Spirit uh, came upon David, and David prayed in Psalm 51, a prayer that is not for church-age believers. David prayed that God would not take his Holy Spirit away from him like he did with Saul. So we see this emphasis on the Holy Spirit among the leadership, that Holy Spirit's role with Saul and David and other kings was to give them the wisdom to lead Israel as the theocratic leaders. We see the priests, also theocratic leaders, and there were some priests like later Ezra uh, is, is, uh, uh, has a relationship with the Holy Spirit. How do we know that? Well, Ezra wrote Scripture. You have other, others that wrote Scripture. And so that would have been part of their relationship with the Holy Spirit because he was providing inspiration. Uh, you have the craftsmen and the builders of the tabernacle and the temple, men like Aholiab and Bezalel. So these are, these are important, but the function of the Holy Spirit wasn't related to their spiritual life, their walk with God, their fellowship, or anything like that. You have passages that are translated as if they're the same as the filling of the Spirit in the Old Testament, but that's not what the Hebrew says. It's very different. Here are some of the key passages in Judges. Uh, and these are New King James, and then I put a, a my revised translation at the end. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. But that's not what it says in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, the word there has the idea of clothing yourself with something or wearing something. So it, it, it could have the idea similar to indwelling, but that's not the word it says. It says he clothed himself with Gideon. The Holy Spirit is going to clothe himself with Gideon to give Gideon the ability to defeat the Midianites. Then you have in Judges 11.29, now we're dealing with Jephthah. Now when, when uh, the, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon in Judges 6.35, the Holy Spirit came upon Aholiab in the first, the first judge, but no mention of the Holy Spirit with Ehud, no mention of the Holy Spirit with Shamgar, no mention of the Holy Spirit with Deborah and Barak. The next time is here in Judges, uh, Judges 6.35. In fact, in Judges 3.10, I didn't put a slide up there, it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel. Just make sure, I guess I just, just left it out. Um, came upon Othniel, and it should be under literally it would be translated, and the Spirit of God was upon Othniel, upon. Now, if you look up here, my um, Bible is upon the pulpit. It is not in the pulpit. 
there's a difference in the significance of that preposition. So it is an external influence. But it's different from that with, with Gideon. It seems to be more uh, internal. He wore Gideon or clothed himself uh, with Gideon. In Judges 11.29, it's very similar, almost identical phraseology to uh, Judges 3.10 with Othniel. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord was upon. You don't have the word bow in Hebrew, which means to come. It is simply the word was. It's the to be verb. The Spirit of the Lord was upon, again, external, uh, Jephthah. Then in verse uh, uh, Judges 13.25, there are several passages, uh, three to be precise, uh, or example, excuse me, four to be precise, that relate to uh, Samson. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord in Judges 13.25 came mightily upon him, that is, or excuse me, the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Literally, it means the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Yahweh began to impel or move him. In Judges 13.25, then in Judges 14.6, we read, And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, that is, upon Samson. And the result is that he tears the lion apart, as you would tear apart a young young goat. Now, I don't know about you. I've never had the opportunity to tear apart a young goat, but I think that would be pretty difficult. But Samson can tear it, do it very easily, and so that's compared to you know, tearing apart a, a, a lion. Then in Judges 14, 19, then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. Now, these two verses, Genesis, I mean, Judges 14, 6 and Judges 14, 19 use the same verb, and it's the idea that the Spirit of Yahweh rushed upon him. So it seems to be something that's very rapid and something that is uh, un- maybe even unexpected. And then in Judges fifteen fourteen, when he, that is Samson, came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the Spirit of Yahweh came mightily upon him. And this is the third time he rushed upon him. And then Gideon is able to uh, tear off the ropes uh, like flax is burned with fire, his bond, bonds broke. So he, it gives him a, a supernatural strength. So what do we learn about the Holy Spirit? I think this is such an important topic, like I said in the introduction, and that many, many church-age believers try to read the New Testament church-age believer relationship to the Holy Spirit backward. But first thing I want to do is think about how would a first century Jew understand the use of the term Holy Spirit? The reason I ask that is because if you talk to a lot of Jews today, they don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe in a separate person of the Son or a separate person of the Holy Spirit, that these are that the Spirit of Yahweh in the Old Testament is just talking about uh, God, a way of talking about God himself. It is not talking about a separate person uh, that is fully divine. How would a first century Jew at the time that Jesus shows up, how would they understand the Holy Spirit? Because you hear people say, well, you you know, they, they were monotheistic. They didn't believe in a trinity. My point here is, really? Seems like they had a pretty good understanding of the Holy Spirit from what happens before Jesus shows up. In Matthew, we're told in 118 uh, that Mary was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And the angel Gabriel tells uh, Joseph that, uh, that his wife is conceived of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph doesn't say, well, what's that? Who's the Holy Spirit? I never heard of that before. How do you get that? In Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist shows up as the forerunner to Jesus. He's the one who is to announce the coming of the Messiah, and he is baptizing people down by the Jordan River, in the Jordan River, and he says, I indeed baptize you 
by means of water unto repentance. The water is a symbol of cleansing and a change in thinking. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize or he will identify you by means of the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, what are the crowds doing? They go, what's the Holy Spirit? They know exactly what he's talking about because of their knowledge of the Holy Spirit as a distinct person from the Old Testament. And the Holy Spirit, as we'll see, is mentioned in various passages related to the future coming for Israel of the um, of the New Covenant. In the Gospel of Mark, we have the same parallel statements. You say, see uh, John saying, uh, the one who comes after me will baptize you by means of the Holy Spirit. And then in Mark 1.10, immediately we read the coming... Uh, coming up from the waters, Jesus came up from the water. He saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And then in verse 12, the immediately the Spirit drove Jesus or led Jesus into the wilderness. Now in Luke, Luke one fifteen makes a interesting statement. He's talking about John the Baptist. He's talking to Zechariah, John's father, and he says... Uh, that your you, your wife will give birth to a son and he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. That means he's going to have a vow, a Nazarene vow. He also will be filled from the Holy Spirit. I translate it that way because this is not the same verb or the same language that you have in Ephesians 5.18. It's a totally different word, and when that word pimplemi is used, when that verb is used, it's usually followed by some by the person who has this relationship with the Holy Spirit speaking or articulating something. It's it's close to talking about uh, inspiration. And then in Luke one thirty five, the angel answered and said to her, "That would be Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you." But none of these people are questioning what the Holy Spirit is. And Luke 1, 40, 41 tells us Elizabeth is filled. It's also, all of these are different words. It's been play me, not play ra'o. Play ra'o is the word used in Ephesians 5.18. This is not talking about the church age uh, command of Ephesians 5.18 being filled by means of the Spirit. It's talking about uh, a filling of or from the Spirit. In the Gospel of John... You, John sees uh, uh, John the Baptist is saying, "I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove." And John one thirty three, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, "That would be God the Father sending him." Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus talks to Nicodemus and says. Uh, surely I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. And Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel. He's the foremost rabbi in all of Israel. He knows the, the Scriptures better than anyone. And Nicodemus doesn't interrupt Jesus and say, now wait a minute, who's this Spirit you're talking about? This tells us that Jews at the first century understood that the Spirit of God was distinct, a distinct person uh, from from the Father, and John three eight being born uh, of the Spirit. So that leads us to a question: Is who is this Holy Spirit? Is he a person, or is he a force, or an influence? And a lot of people, a lot of liberal Christians who have rejected the Trinity, will come along and say that the the Holy Spirit, this is the Spirit of God. This is just a a force, a spiritual force. But that's not what we get from the Scripture. So what the Scripture says is we see at the time of Jesus' baptism that the Spirit of God is descending like a dove. You hear the voice of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son. And then you see the dove descending upon Jesus as a separate and distinct uh, witness of who Jesus Christ is. And so it's, we have to rely on further New Testament clarification to understand some of who the Holy Spirit is 
but it's present there from from just the beginning. And there there are three distinct persons present at the baptism uh, of, of Christ, and then you also see them in the Great Commission, when Jesus commissioned his disciples with their church age marching orders in Matthew twenty eight nineteen, go therefore, or you could trans. It, it's a participle. I, I remember when I was in seminary, people would struggle with this while you were going, and it could have that sense. But a participle can also be just an imperative. So I think it's accurately translated. Go therefore, and make disciples. Of all the nations, making disciples is an imperative verb, so it picks up the participle at the beginning picks up that that command aspect. Make disciples by baptizing them. It's an instrumental uh, dative there by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. What's going on there? Well, that's what would normally happen at salvation. So it's just a picture of of leading people to Christ. And, of course, the physical water baptism is just a picture of the baptism by the Spirit that takes place instantly. And the purpose for water baptism is to teach a very abstract doctrine related to our position in Christ, that we were baptized into his death, burial, and resurrection, Romans 6.3. Matthew 17.5 I'll just skip over a couple of these verses. Second uh, Corinthians thirteen fourteen mentions all three members of the Trinity, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And 1 Peter 1, 2, we are choice, not elect. We studied that choice according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit. So these are the areas where the Holy Spirit has a realm of responsibility in terms of fellowship of the Holy Spirit and sanctification, our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. We see that the Holy Spirit isn't a force. He has the characteristics of a person. He is called in John fourteen sixteen another helper. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's just told them that he's going to be crucified and he's going to be buried and he's going to rise from the dead. And they're just as confused as they can be. And he says that he must go to the Father, but he will send them another helper. The Greek word here is alas. You have two words for another in Greek. Heteros means another of a different kind. People who are heterosexual have uh, opposite sex uh, affinities, uh, attraction. Uh, uh, Alas here means another of the same kind. Now, when Jesus says it's another paraclete, it's another of the same kind. He's comparing it to himself. He's going to be like me. He's God, he's a person, the Holy Spirit is God, and he's a person, so that he may abide with you forever. John fifteen twenty six. but when the helper, the paraclete comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, he will testify of me. A person testifies. Uh, verbal utterances and communication is part of the makeup of a person. He also has will. Uh, in Acts 16, the Holy uh, Paul wanted, and uh, Paul and Silas wanted to go uh, into Asia, which is the province of Asia in what is now Western Turkey, and uh, so they and they tried to go into Bithynia, which is up to the north. But he says the Spirit, Luke writes this, the Spirit did not permit them. How did the Spirit not permit them? We don't know. I mean, did he verbally say something? Uh, Did he just create circumstances where it was impossible? We don't know, and we shouldn't guess because we don't know. The the Holy Spirit didn't tell us. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, it's one and the same Spirit who works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he will. So he has his own volition. He's an independent person within, uh, within the Trinity. He's going to communicate 
John 16, 14, he will take of what is mine, Jesus said, and declare it to you. He's involved in special revelation. Uh, John 14, 26, he will teach you all things. It's a masculine noun. He will te- uh, teach them, the masculine singular pronoun, not it will teach you. He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. In John fifteen twenty six, he, again, a masculine singular pronoun, he will testify of me. So the Holy Spirit has all these attributes of being an autonomous person. Walk by means of the Spirit, Acts fifteen twenty eight. for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Well, you know, if he's a force, an, uh, an impersonal force, he, he, he can't. He's not going to have um, uh, senses of this type. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. And he's involved in our sanctification. So these are all attributes. Jude 20, we are to pray by means of the Holy Spirit. That relates to fellowship. That relates to being in right relationship with the Lord. If he's just a force, you can't lie to a force. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Satan isn't the one who was the content of the filling. He filled their heart with the content of a desire to lie. And uh, I knew one theologian, well-known, used to say, well, this is satanic possession. I said, how can you read it that way? That just, it's funny. Some people just read things and can't understand what it's saying. Uh, Satan filled your heart to lie. It's not Satan inside their heart. Um, Acts 5.4, you have not lied to men but to God. That's a very clear statement. He lies to the Holy Spirit in verse 3 and in verse 4, he's lying to God. So the Holy Spirit is fully divine, and he's a full person. So he's given the uh, works of deity. Uh, it is the Holy Spirit in Romans eight eleven who raised Jesus from the dead. In Romans 15, 9, um, there are many signs and wonders, mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's able to heal people. He's able to uh, provide special revelation all of these things. In 1 Corinthians twelve eleven, he distributes spiritual gifts to each one as he wills. He's omniscient. He's who has directed the spirit of the Lord, uh, or his counselor who has taught him. He does, can't be taught because he's the spirit of the Lord. Uh, who has known the mind of the Lord, Romans eleven thirty four. All of these indicate that, that no one teaches the Holy Spirit anything. God's omniscience means he knows all of the knowable. He's never going to learn anything new. He's never going to forget anything. There's nothing that he doesn't know thoroughly. And so he's always the same. He's immutable in his knowledge. And in his omnipresence, the work, Paul, uh, David said in Psalm 139, Seven and eight. Where can I go from your spirit? If I, where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go into Sheol, not hell, but Sheol, you're there. God is everywhere. The Spirit of God is also everywhere. So when we get into the scriptures, we see that the Father is portrayed as the divine architect. The Son is portrayed as the uh, construction supervisor and the revealer of the Father. Each person has a different role. And the Spirit is the project engineer. He's the one who hovers over the face of the deep in Genesis 1-2. And so he is the one also who oversees the provision of divine revelation and the one who brings to completion uh, the plan of the Father. The Holy Spirit forth, the Holy Spirit is involved in bringing together creation, regeneration, and divine revelation, as well as empowering the individual spiritual life of the church age believer. All of that has to do with the role of God the Holy Spirit. Now when we get into the Old Testament, we have to understand a little bit about the vocabulary that's there. The Hebrew word is ruach. It's used 387 times in the Old Testament. It has a lot of different meanings, just as the Greek word pneuma has a lot of different meanings. 
It can mean breeze or breath or wind or air. It can mean something vain or futile. It can mean the breath of God, which supports life, as in Genesis 6:17. It can refer to the human spirit, that part of our immaterial makeup that allows our soul to have uh, fellowship, communion with God, understand God, and uh, be able to relate to God, to think God's thoughts after him. It can refer to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Yahweh, and in a small number of references in the Old Testament, they're somewhat ambiguous, and they can just refer to the presence of God, or they can refer to uh, his influence on the earth. Psalm 104, verse 30, we read, You send forth your spirit, indicating a distinction. You, God the Father, send forth your spirit. They are created, and you renew the face of the earth. Second Kings 2 9. And so it was when they had crossed over, that is Elijah and Elisha crossing over the Jordan River. Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what may I do for you before I'm taken away from you? This is when Elisha's about to go to be with the Lord in heaven. The fiery chariot's going to come pick him up. And Elisha says, I want a double portion, a double inheritance of your spirit. That is the spirit that empowers you. I want a double dose of the Holy Spirit that you have. In Ezekiel 3, 12, rather, uh, Ezekiel 3.12, the Holy Spirit, Ezekiel says, lifted me up, and I heard behind me a great thunderous voice. In Ezekiel 11.1, 1, then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate. So the Holy Spirit transporting him geographically. Zechariah 4.6, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. It's not by might nor by power but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. See, when the New Testament is written and John's talking about the Spirit of God and Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, the people knew who they were talking about. He's all through the Old Testament. In Job, the earliest book probably that was written, by his spirit he adorned the heavens. God the Father worked through God the Holy Spirit to adorn and organize the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. That's an allusion to Satan's fall. Job 33, 4, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So you see that the Holy Spirit is involved in our creation and in the giving of life through the breath of the Almighty. Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God is hovering over the earth. So we see all of these passages that relate to very early stages of revelation in Genesis and Job that, that reinforce the idea that the Holy Spirit was, was not something that, an idea that evolved through the revelation of the Old Testament through that particular time period. And then we come to Isaiah 40:13, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has taught him, clearly divine. Psalm 104:30, you send forth your spirit, they are created. So now what I want to do is I'll stop here because our time's about up, but we'll come back next time to look at how the Holy Spirit functioned in terms of empowering certain leaders. So what we've seen here is clear that the Holy Spirit is presented in the Old Testament as more than a force, more than simply another name for God. He is a distinct person. He is is used in distinction to the work of God the Father or God the Son in creation, and that he is involved in the giving of revelation. He is involved in uh, leadership. Uh, he is involved in uh, providing direction for the leaders of Israel. So we'll come back next time and wrap up what the, the role of the Holy Spirit is in the Old Testament. Father, thank you for this time we've had to study these things, to understand that the Holy Spirit 
uh, as a distinct person within the Trinity that from the very earliest writings of the Scripture, from the very second verse of Genesis, the Spirit of God hovers over the earth, that this is not something that evolved in the evolution of religious thought, but that the Holy Spirit as a distinct person has been present throughout all of the Old Testament, and that this same Holy Spirit indwells us, as is making us a temple, a new temple as the church, the body of Christ, and is the one who enables and strengthens and empowers us in our spiritual growth, that we need to learn to walk by this Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.